everyone's favorite time of year is right around the corner, college football season. To celebrate, DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is putting new players in the center of the action with $200 in free bets instantly if you bet $1 or more on any college football game. Take advantage of this limited-time offer now. You heard right, DraftKings is giving all new players $200 in free bets instantly when you place a bet of $1 or more on any college football game, no matter what. Head to the DraftKings Sportsbook app now to check out all of the great promotions and daily odds boosts that they are offering. DraftKings Sportsbook is safe, secure, and reliable, located right here in the United States, so it's easy to deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code TBPN to receive $200 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any college football game. That's promo code TBPN to get your free $200 in free bets instantly for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, NJIN or PA only. New customers only, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Hey, this is Jordan Melly from Locked On Bulls and from SB Nation. You're listening to On the NBA Beat. You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Last season, while playing their home games in Tampa Bay, the Toronto Raptors missed the playoffs for the first time since 2013, ending what was then the NBA's longest active streak of postseason appearances. This offseason, the player who many consider to be the greatest Raptor of all time, Kyle Lowry, was traded to the Miami Heat. Still, many believe that brighter days are ahead for Toronto, behind new franchise cornerstones in Pascal Siakam and Fred VanVleet, and a slew of young talent highlighted by this year's fourth overall pick, Scotty Barnes. To help us delve into the building blocks that will transition the franchise into their next era, we've brought on Blake Murphy of The Athletic, who just returned from watching the team at Las Vegas Summer League. Let's bring him in. Hey, Blake. Thanks for joining us today. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. What's, uh, what's going on? How are you? Doing as well as we can these days. Excited, though, to talk Raptors and Summer League with you. So uh, how many Summer Leagues is this for you? This was my fifth. So um, 2016, 2017, 18, 19, and then there wasn't one last year, mm-hmm. and then this one, 21. So, so relative veteran, I, I guess, in Summer League terms. Yes. Old for the blog crew at this point, which is uh, gets pointed out to me more than I would like. Yeah. Just to put you on the spot right off the bat, what are your what are some of your top Vegas recommendations in terms of things to do or places to eat? I think the one that most people know close ish to the arena called Lotus of Siam. It's a really mm, good Thai yeah. place. Uh, there's Firefly right down the street from there. That's a, a good tapas place, especially if there's a bigger group of you. Um, I actually went to, uh, I have a friend who lives in Vegas. And every summer when I go there, 
we do like a, a dinner night and there's a there's a really good all you can eat sushi spot like way off the strip that I don't remember the name of. Um, and then this year we went to the arts district and we kind of bounced around. So so that's like maybe 15 minutes off the strip. And it's more of where like the locals go out and stuff. And that was really cool. We just kind of went to this place at those pasties, which are like gourmet hot pockets. And I had a really good Cubano. We went to uh, a brewery that like works with Ryan Reeves from the Vegas Golden Knights to to do some like hockey pun beers. And then there was a, I don't really understand how my, my friend is probably about 175 pounds and, and Hmm. Eric Kareen is very small as well. And he was with us and they both had room after all this for pizza. And I just Hmm. sat there and drank a water. Uh, I am significantly bigger than those guys, but apparently, apparently I just couldn't handle it. Yeah. I haven't been out to Vegas in a few years, but I do love Lotus of Siam. I'll definitely check out some of those other places you've mentioned. In terms of on the court in Summer League, I think the guy that a lot of people in terms of the Raptors were excited to see was their first round pick, Scotty Barnes. What were your first impressions of him? And also, how much of him had you watched pre-draft? And were you as surprised as many people were when the Raptors selected him at number four? Uh, I was not very surprised. Um, I had even mocked them to pick him on lottery night, which a lot of people were unhappy with me about. But I knew, you know, I, I had known that he was kind of Raptors-y and he was kind of their type, you know, most of the year. And you mostly during the season, I only watch college basketball like as a fan. Like I try to mm-hmm. keep up with the Canadian kids and then watch March Madness and all that stuff. And it's only it's only once the the Raptors are eliminated that I really start digging into guys from a like scouting perspective and how might they fit with the Raptors, you know, the Raptors being a non-playoff team this year, I had lots of time to do that. I did really dig in on Barnes. You know, I, I think we all kind of figured it would be a choice between Barnes and Suggs at that spot. So um, try to be as prepared as possible for both those guys uh, had Suggs a little higher on my personal board, which doesn't really mean anything because I'm not a, an expert on that stuff, but Barnes wasn't far off. And I, I kind of had a feeling that, that was, you know, maybe more of a 50-50 thing for the Raptors than the public seemed to be assuming. Yeah, when we had uh, Brian Schroeder on for last episode, he wasn't too surprised either, I guess, with the Raptors selecting Barnes. Just, I think they feel pretty confident in their ability now to develop a guy like Barnes based on their history with some of the other guys that they've developed on their team, like Pascal or OG, not to say that they're similar type of players necessarily, but just like taking a guy with that kind of upside, I guess. Yeah. And, and, you know, for them, it's uh, there's a lot of like character stuff that goes Mm -hmm. into it, too. And and I think everyone like kind of sees Jalen Suggs as a, you know, very tough guy, a very winning oriented guy on the court, the kind of guy who does a lot of stuff that, you know, he has nice box score stats, but maybe doesn't show up in the box score also but Barnes you know I would phrase it as Barnes won the with that spot more than Suggs lost it mm-hmm. um he just kind of blew them away from a personality standpoint and a you know developmental capacity standpoint in terms of like hey how well do you take the teaching and how quickly can you put this stuff into action and he obviously gets rave rave reviews as a person and a worker and all that stuff so that's kind of where they place that bet and I think you know in their eyes if everything else is equal. And these two guys are, you know, very similar. Take, take the bigger guy. And uh, there's maybe a little more to play with there or maybe a higher floor or something. But yeah, I wasn't, wasn't crazy surprised. You know, I know 
I know Raptors fans, a lot of them didn't love it, uh, even though Barnes right away seemed like such a such a great character off the court. And, you know, I think it's something that Raptors fans will probably be bothered by on and off throughout the year because Jalen Suggs is probably going to average 15 points a game and make an all-rookie team. And I don't know if the same will go for, for Scotty Barnes, but... You know, obviously you make a, a fourth overall pick with more than a, a one-year window in mind. Yeah, and then from watching him close up in Summer League, was there anything about his game that particularly impressed you? Yeah, I mean, nothing that was like too unexpected. I, I think offensively the biggest thing that you're attracted to is the playmaking, and, and that's mostly a tool in transition in the open court right now versus um, in the half court. In the half court, he just... The handle isn't awesome. Um, he t- can telegraph the pass a little bit. It's just, it's going to take a little bit of time for the offensive side to catch up. And I, I think that's completely reasonable for, you know, a lot of young guys. Um, but the playmaking, you know, on the move is real. And I think he hasn't shot well at all. Um, we're recording this before Saturday night's game, uh, but he shoot 33% from, from the floor, which isn't great. And, you know, some misses around the rim. And I, I think, that's partially maybe he's seeing opportunities and knowing where to be aggressive, but maybe the skill package just haven't hasn't caught up with that yet with the 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 feel and the athleticism combination. But I think that's encouraging. Those are those are the kind of mistakes you want a guy making, not not a guy you know settling for jump shots or, or being really passive in general. And then obviously, like Barnes's defense is, is going to be his calling card early on. I think he's been pretty good on that end. The the processing speed there is really high level and they've had him picking up full court. They've had him guarding across positions. So I think he's going to be a real player from day one defensively, as hard as that is as a rookie, but the offensive game is going to take a little bit of time here. And I know, as we said, you're a summer league veteran. Hmm. It's easy to you know have a lot of overreactions, both positively and negatively to certain summer league performances by these young guys. I know you talked for Barnes about his defense, but what are some takeaways that you feel confident would be translatable from the summer league team to the regular season? And also in terms of other guys on that Raptors summer league team, who are some standouts to you? Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest thing that stands out and it's, it's kind of funny and like, you know, NBA Twitter jokes about it a lot, but it, but it's pretty legitimate is that the Raptors have a type. And Scotty Barnes fits that type. They've also got Justin Champagne in, in there with them. Freddie Gillespie, who's a 6'9 center. Ishmael Wainwright, who's been a lot of fun and has probably been, you know, the standout guy that, that fans maybe didn't know beforehand. Uh, they have a lot of guys who are undersized for their position, but defend like hell. And offensively, well, you know, they'll figure it out on the fly. So um, that's kind of, you know, it's a little amusing to, to see that play out on a summer league roster. They're certainly not a team that was like, oh, we don't have anyone over 6'9". We better uh, we better bring in a bunch of seven-footers to summer league. I would say, too, you know, the, the two first-round picks who are in their second season have looked how you hope. You know, Malachi Flynn didn't play a ton until late in the year last year. He's looked really solid. You know, a second-year point guard who played rotation minutes last year, he should look solid. That, that's kind of the the rule of thumb in Summer League that 
you don't get too blown away by looking good, but you it's a concern if you look bad. But he's looked really, really solid. The the three point shooting has been really strong, which is a great which is great for his development. Uh, and then Precious Achua, who they picked up from uh, the Miami Heat in the Kyle Lowry deal, has had a good couple of games: thirty two points and sixteen rebounds uh, over two games, shooting really well overall. Um, even though he's missed a couple of, of layups and you know fumbled a couple of of passes on the roll as he does. Um, but he's showing a little bit of three-point range. He's grabbed some defensive rebounds that he took coast to coast, which is something the Raptors love to have their bigs do. So those two guys, you know, again, second-year players, you don't, they're supposed to look good, but it, it's certainly better that they look rotation ready than the opposite. Yeah. And I do want to talk about that Lowry trade, probably the biggest event of the off season for the Raptors. We're definitely going to go into Kyle Lowry's legacy as a Raptor, but first, continuing on the line of the pieces that came back in that trade, Precious Achua, 21 years old, he played with Nigeria in the Olympics. First, focusing on him, how do you see him fitting in with what the Raptors' new young core is and uh, his role for the Raptors next season? Yeah, so he's a guy that, you know, I think was certainly on their radar last year with the number 29 pick. Had he slid that far, he obviously got picked 20th by the Heat and had kind of an up and down season. You know, like a a rookie big, you can look past him averaging five points, three rebounds because he only played 12 minutes. And but, you know, he he lost his rotation spot to Dwayne Dedman. He at times really struggled with his hands. You know, poor free throw shooter suggests that, hey, maybe you know, even if he had a bigger role, you get into hack-a-shack kind of territory. Having said that, though, he's 21 years old. He's 6'8". He's really long. And he's got a little bit of ball skill to him. And I think, you know, the Raptors, when you look at who else they have in their core, they obviously like big guys who can put the ball on the floor a little bit and are versatile defensively. But I also think that Achua is the most natural center of those guys if we're going to put guys into... Uh, the traditional positional boxes because he is, you know, 235 pounds and he does have the the kind of length and standing reach closer to a center than, than a forward. So you can look past the six, eight height. So that's kind of where I see him fitting in. You know, I, I think if he's been in Miami and looked at how Bam developed and now he's in Toronto and he looks at how Siakam developed and, you know, maybe he finds obviously you can't bet on him developing like those two guys because they're two incredible development stories. Um, but even if he can pull a little bit from those guys in terms of, okay, what is a path to, you know, me being a guy like that look like and where, where, what position on the floor does that happen at? And I think, you know, the Raptors will probably try to convince him that, that he's best off in their system as a pseudo center of sorts. You know, you look at, he might come off the bench behind Ken Birch, but you look at a lineup of Scotty Barnes, OG, Pascal Siakam, and, and Precious Achua out there with whatever point guard, throw Fred Van Vliet out there for some spacing or whatever. But you you can see the the idea defensively really quickly. So for Precious, there, there are bigger questions on the offensive end, I think. Defensively, he was up and down because he was a rookie. I thought he had some really good performances with Nigeria, at the defensive end, you know, switching a lot, tracking ball handlers, again, grabbing a defensive rebound and pushing. Um, but offensively, he's got to work on his just kind of the the basics of being a hard diving role man. And he's got to continue to expand the range. And, uh, you know, he's hit 
hit a couple threes already in summer league, which has Raptors fans excited for the pick and pop game. And, and that doesn't need to be a high volume weapon, but there are opportunities for that in the Raptors offense for their bigs, especially as a trailer. So that'll be an area of focus for him too, I'd guess. And then the other piece coming back, Goran Dragic, to say the least, I don't think he was very excited about coming to Toronto, I guess, but... Public enemy number one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, GM Webster said in an interview that the hope is for Goran to be with Toronto in the regular season, but rumor mill has it that they're probably fielding offers to flip Dragic. Do you have any thoughts on that topic? Yeah, I'm a little surprised it didn't happen right away. I thought the Dallas situation or even a New Orleans situation would make sense for Drogic. Now, I do think that, you know, leverage-wise or worst-case scenario-wise, having Drogic on your roster isn't a a terrible thing. He's still a useful guy. The Raptors' oldest player at this moment, other than Drogic, is Chris Boucher. So, you know, the leadership element is probably a real factor there as well. And then, you know, their backcourt could use a guy like that. Now, having said that, I don't think plan A is to keep Drogic all year. I think at this point, if a deal couldn't get worked out with one of those teams uh, at this point, you know, you're probably heading into the season, keeping him and then, you know, making sure he's in the rotation, keeping an eye on his market uh, and then seeing what you can get for him at the trade deadline and kind of a, it's almost like a delayed three team deal of sorts. So that's where I think, that situation probably is, you know, I think Dallas comes back to the table on that. Obviously they can try to call Toronto's bluff and see if they'll just buy Drogic out after the, uh, after the trade deadline. And maybe that happens if there are no suitors, but I think, you know, Drogic at 19 million isn't a bargain, but it's a movable deal at the deadline for a team that needs a rotation guard. So awkwardness of the kind of first impression aside, I think that situation's, okay it's uh it's not my favorite use of cap flexibility and the lowry sign and trade option but you know if they end up turning around and and finding a home for Drogic that gets them another good young asset or or draft capital uh, maybe the whole situation looks a little different yeah and we have to talk about Lowry's legacy as a Raptor, nine seasons with Toronto, endearingly referred to by Raptors fans as the Groat, greatest Raptor of all time. The Raptors chairman, Larry Tannenbaum, said after the sign-and-trade that his jersey will be the first retired by the Raptors. As someone who's covered Toronto for so long, can you just talk about why Lowry meant so much to this city and the franchise? Yeah, I think There are a lot of reasons, and one of the big ones is just longevity. The Raptors haven't had a lot of guys stick around nine years. Uh, They haven't had a lot of guys win a lot in Toronto also. So I think the fact that Lowry's arrival, not year one, but Lowry's arrival and his ascension kind of parallels the franchise's own rise to being a more legitimate franchise in the NBA and being you know, a a pretty consistently good team and eventually a championship contender, the growth of Lowry and the growth of the team as a whole are kind of hand in hand. And I think, you know, this owes a lot to DeMar DeRozan and Dwayne Casey and the rest of the initial core as well. But I think Lowry has always really fit kind of what Raptors fans are about. And what I mean by that is, you know, the We the North campaign from back in 2013, 2014, kind of tried to get at this of like, hey, there's an entire country here that's obsessed with hockey, but hey, 
pay attention. There's a bunch of us basketball fans too. And hey, there's 30 markets in the NBA and 29 of them get what Raptors fans feel like is preferred attention. But hey, there's a basketball team here too. And so, you know, they kind of had this ability to, you know, this level of othering with the fan base where you could kind of get people to buy in more by pointing out that they were, you know, it almost made the fans feel like underdogs too. And I think that Lowry really represented that with his career path and his general attitude and the chip on his shoulder and Damar even more so, but, you know, Kyle was always the the more impactful piece when it came to uh, winning, if not scoring. And then, you know, obviously Lowry was around for the championship still. So he's meant a lot. I, I think, you know, there's a good, probably a good chunk of the fan base who became fans at some point during Lowry's tenure. And he was one of their introductions to, hey, this is what a hard-nosed player looks like, or this is what a guy looks like who you really have to watch every day to appreciate everything he does. I mean, if you're if you're so inclined, you know, Lowry's always been a fascinating study on the analytics side and like, hey, what actually drives winning in basketball or, or who is actually the best player on the team? And I just think there are a lot of people in Toronto who probably either hit the peak of their fandom with Lowry as a Raptor or came on board with Lowry as a Raptor and kind of learned the game and grew to appreciate and love the game through a Lowry lens because he's been the constant the last nine years. So meant a lot to the fan base and the franchise and the growth status is real. Him being the first Jersey is the way it should be. You know, I've shared all this stuff a lot already. So yeah, I don't know there, there's a million things you could say good about Kyle Lowry and how much he meant and how important he was in Toronto. Do you think there's anyone else, uh, once Kyle's jersey goes up into the rafters, that anyone else deserve to be up there with him? I think, you know, the fan base is still a, at least a little split on Vince Carter just because of the specifics of the exit and the fact that while, you know, the sides have, the team and the player have made up since, some people feel there's never really been a proper mea culpa on, on Vince's part. You know, it's a lot of, some of the history's been retconned and stuff like that. Uh, having said that, Vince Carter is probably the most important player in Canadian basketball history, um, at least until very recently. You know, that's a real thing. Like we saw Vancouver move early. Toronto's a different market and a much bigger market and, and a different market demographically in terms of age makeup. And, you know, did people come up in the culture of hockey and all that stuff? But the Raptors weren't particularly successful early on. And then Vince came along and they became must-see viewing and kind of the story's been told in the Carter effect, just the the number of players that uh, he inspired here and, you know, kind of created that element of, of the Raptors being cool for a while. And that's really important. And I think, you know, I think his jersey will probably go up at some point. It has to be after Lowry, in my opinion. I don't know. The DeMar side of it is a little awkward just because of the way that, they won a championship right after he left and he obviously wasn't very happy with that whole situation. You know, time heals all with this kind of stuff. I guess part of my hesitation too is like, are they retiring these jerseys or are they just kind of like honoring them in the rafters? And if it's the latter, then it gets really easy. Like Lowry's a no brainer. And then you're probably putting up Vince, DeMar, maybe even Bosch since Bosch is, is now hall of fame bound. Um, but if you're actually like retiring the number, 
then the bar is probably a little higher and, and you could make a case that it should only be Kyle for a bit. But it's it gets tough because it's Vince meant so much to basketball in Canada and Kyle is kind of hard to separate from DeMar, even though DeMar wasn't here for the championship. So glad that's not my decision to make. Yeah, and I'd say probably the other big transaction of the offseason for the Raptors was retaining Masai Ujiri. He's moving up in the organization with a new title of vice chairman of basketball operations. Was that ever in doubt for you with how integral Maxai has been to this Raptors organization? Um, I mean, there was doubt just because as long as it's not officially done, there's always that little bit of hesitation. And I never thought it was particularly likely that Ujiri would leave to run another basketball team. I thought what might poach him away are some kind of bigger things of like, hey, does he want to be more involved at the league level or with Basketball Africa League maybe? Or, you know, he does a lot with his Giants of Africa charity and um, could pretty seamlessly, I think, transition into, you know, maybe not a quote unquote politician, but using his kind of voice and prominence um, from a political end. So those were kind of the things like I would have been really surprised if he was like, oh, I'm going to go be the president of the Washington Wizards and see if I can build a team there. But it wasn't a sure thing that he was staying. I, I kind of felt the longer it dragged on, ironically, like the the better the chances were of him staying because he was still operating in the role. And why would you go through an offseason with, with that level of uncertainty if he wasn't going to stick around? But yeah, so there was there was real hesitation. But good that it's done. Um, the vice chairman thing's cool. It's a nice little nod to his importance to the organization and, and how he's kind of a partner with higher up in the MLSC structure. You know, I don't think it changes a ton for the Raptors other than, I mean, look, Bobby Webster's a good GM and he's probably ready to run his own shop, but Masai's personality and charisma is what gets you in the door on some meetings and gets you noticed a little more. So I think it's a, it's a pretty good combination of people they have in their front office at this point. On the court for next season, with Kyle Lowry's departure, you've already talked about how there might be a little bit of a leadership void, given that other than Goran Dragic, the oldest player on the Raptors roster is Chris Bruchet turning 29 next season. I think a lot of people kind of assume that at least on the court, Pascal is the guy that maybe needs to step up into that role. He had two straight seasons of meteoric improvement, a lot of people putting him among the top echelon of players in the NBA. But I think starting from maybe the 2019 playoffs, kind of had some slightly disappointing on-the-court performances. Obviously, last season uh, had about with COVID-19 and some injury troubles as well. But do you sort of buy into the fact that Pascal still needs to prove himself to be the new leader of this team? Or is it more of like a leadership by committee thing? Yeah, I mean, from a larger like spiritual and like emotional who is the leader, I think this is kind of Fred Van Vliet's team. Um, but Siakam is going to be their number one option and, and their leader on offense. And yeah, I think he has some growth to do there still. I thought last year even with the COVID and the shoulder injury and the clutch struggles. Um, I thought he improved. I thought he improved as a playmaker. He improved from 
his shooting from every area of the court inside the arc. Um, so that's an important consideration. Uh, the three point percentage, you know, those things are going to go up and down as, as they do. So not a, a ton of alarm there. I don't think, especially because he was taking a tougher diet of shots. Um, having said all that, you know, he needs to keep going and, and he got paid, you know, not the full super max, but the 28% kicker on his, on his max deal. And, and he needs to continue to, to improve, to deliver on that. Like, I think, you know, he's not that level of player yet, but it's not like he's a bad player by any means. And given how much he's improved so quickly, uh, you know, the path to him being somewhat reasonable value on that 33 million he's owed this year or 35 million next year is not all that crazy. So I, I think, you know, the three point percentage ticks up, you continue to improve as a, as a playmaker, uh, you get back on the court healthy in a, in a timely manner, which is the the big con- question with him right now. Uh, and I think there's still room for growth. I don't think, I know people have been negative about him and his name keeps popping up and stuff because, you know, the context there suggests other teams are trying to poach him while his value might be low, which great. You're, uh, you're welcome to do that, but I, I don't know if I take, uh, hey, the Sacramento Kings like Pascal Siakam as meaning the Raptors are going to move him. But yeah, anyway, so he's in a spot where I think there's there's real room for growth and there's room for him to continue to improve and, and deliver on that contract. Uh, he's just not there yet. Yeah, and I guess there's a difference between being like the number one option on the team on the court and then being the emotional leader or team leader type position, that type of role really exemplified by Kyle, Kyle Lowry in the past, probably. Um, as he said, Fred Van Vliet may be most likely to step up, even last season, really putting himself into that role as well. Over the course of Van Vliet's career, he's had a lot of doubters just questioning him as a an undersized 6'1 combo guard, kind of not really looking the part. Um, but I think by now seems to have silenced all of those with so many clutch performances and big, big games and always being reliable. How do you think Van Vliet can uh, take another step forward in his career for the Raptors? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a big part of it is legitimately the leadership growth. And he's slowly been taking on more and more of that over the years anyway. But I think there's a real off-court step to be taken there that's really hard to measure um, but it's a it's real, and he means a lot to the team from that perspective. On the court, you know, his three ball is very good. He improved a fair amount as a pick and roll passer last year. Is still a little bit of room for improvement there. Borderline all defense guy, and then and then the big thing is, and this is what's keeping him from being, you know, an above average efficiency guard is that he's not a great finisher, and part of that is because he's six feet tall and isn't like super bursty athletically. And part of it is because that's still an area of his game skill wise that he's, he's working on. So, um, you know, I kind of see him as a guy where you just keep making little improvements everywhere at this stage. There's not one enormous thing. You're like, this is what you should be drilling all off season because I don't know if you really can drill finishing against seven footer contact, uh, all that much in the off season since you don't really want to get hurt. And he, mm-hmm ends every one of those drives on his ass. So that that's where I'm at with him. I think for this team, the most important thing though, is going to be that off court element and, and how much, you know, him and, and to a lesser extent, Siakam kind of can grab the the leadership reins here. 
And then I think the other guy that people talk about in that same, maybe less than Siakam and Van Vliet, but in sort of the same vein is OG Ananobi. He's another guy that the Raptors, with the Raptors, he's improved every single year. How do you see that trend continuing for him? Well, I see it continuing. I think uh, I think he's great. Um, he's still so young, and there's a lot of room for for continued growth there. I think you know you look at how far he's come from an offensive skill perspective already, and it's really encouraging. Obviously, this stuff is not linear, so you know you can't keep projecting him just forward and forward and forward. But you know there's kind of exponential returns when you get a bunch of guys together on the floor who can all put the ball on the floor a little bit and shoot it a little bit and attack a scramble defense a little bit. And the more OG can do that, the more functional everything's going to be together and the better a fit he's going to be alongside Siakam and Van Vliet. So we've kind of seen him grow from this 3 and D guy to like a really elite 3 and D role player to now where, you know, I want to see what he looks like this year with a 20% usage rate. And can he be a 2A, 2B kind of scorer uh, along with Van Vliet behind Siakam, because I think that the the base is there, but the, it's harder to do that stuff at higher volume. So that's his next challenge. And, you know, defensively, there's no question. I think he's probably a top five defender in, in the NBA. So and I don't think he's going to he's going to lose that anytime soon. Earlier in this episode, you talked about the summer league roster as being like there's like a Raptors type. I think there is some point to that because there are a lot of guys on the Raptors who do have like very dis- distinct in the NBA bodies. Uh, one guy that we've mentioned his name a lot is Chris Boucher, 6'9", 200 pounds, really came onto the scene last season with the Raptors, had a very efficient season, doubled his points per game average. He's a guy that, uh, you know, has a pretty interesting backstory Late bloomer, as we said before, one of the oldest guys on the Raptors, but really didn't start playing organized basketball until much later than most people in the NBA. What can you tell me about his, how he fits in or like what his role is going to be next season with the Raptors? Yeah, I mean, you know, what he's going to be next is a really interesting question because he's not, he's not young. He's not prospect age still he might be the the oldest raptor but game wise and experience wise you know you're still seeing some growth now i've long been pretty optimistic about boucher's path and what he could get to um if i'm being completely honest i think that maybe you know this is where he plateaus a little bit not necessarily forever but he's turned himself into a really good offensive bench weapon and um you know the raptors have had to try to decide is he a five is he a four and that doesn't matter too much in their system but you know defensively he certainly looks a lot more comfortable flying around um than he does protecting the rim and he's obviously not um super strong for for those battles inside so um the the challenges for him from here are okay how can you you know find ways within the offense to tick up your usage that that isn't just shooting pick and pop threes. You know, can you create for yourself a little bit? Um, Can you get to the free throw line a little bit? And, you know, some of that'll be whatever chemistry he develops with Malachi Flynn in the second unit. But yeah. And then, you know, Boucher, the honest truth is, yeah, he's a G league defensive player of the year, but he needs to be better defensively at the NBA level. And, And 
it's unfair to him sometimes to have to go in there and, and be tasked with banging with guys that are much bigger, but also, you know, you got to do it. That's, that's your role sometimes. Or, or if they're going to switch things up so that uh, an OG or someone like that is guarding the center, you know, you really got to make sure you can, you can hang with those wing forwards. So definitely I'm, I'm looking for more growth from him on the defensive end of things this year. Yeah. And as you said, not everybody can have sort of the meteoric rise of a Pascal Siakam, but being able to develop from a G League slash two-way type player to a mid-roster or like even 10 minutes a game, 15 minutes a game type guy, that's a skill that is valuable in a lot of organizations. And that's something that the Raptors have been able to do well in developing their players. Uh, Another fan favorite, Yuta Watanabe, re-signed last year to a guaranteed contract after starting with a two-way contract with the Raptors. He's another guy that is a lot on a lot of people's radar with how he was able to pick his spots, uh, show flashes at times. I mean, I know wasn't necessarily like a super impact player, didn't play that much, but a lot of people like him as well. Yeah, Yuta's great. And, you know, obviously he has a story that a lot of people write, uh, root for. He, he's a very likable guy. I think the big thing with Yuta for me is can he assert himself a little bit more on offense because he he does have that defensive versatility they look for excellent closeout guy from a fundamental and kind of positionally and offensively he can shoot a little bit but he's pretty hesitant to do so and that can you know that can sometimes be a killer because you work and work and work as an offense to create an advantage and then when the advantage is presented, you know, any bit of hesitation lets the defense reset. So the last two years, he's shot the three ball well. It's just been on a small-ish sample, and the Raptors would really like him to shoot that a little more freely. I mean, this is not rocket science. If you're hitting 40% of your threes, you're going to have the green light to shoot as much as you want. But that's where I think the Olympic experience is probably going to be really good for him because Japan needed him to play that role more. And, you know, he was kind of the one B to Rui and they really leaned on him to create offense because it was, you know, those two were, were carrying a lot of things. And I, I would hope that as he comes back, you know, whether or not he plays in these last couple summer league games, but looking ahead to camp, you know, you hope that that experience of, Oh, I'm playing against some of the best teams of the world and I'm having to shoot 15, 16 shots in a game. You hope some of that sticks. And when he comes back to the NBA, there's a little more confidence in the aggression because I, I do think he has a nice offensive game. They just, they want to see more of it. And it's funny to, especially in summer league, because you're watching a bunch of these guys. And with a lot of these guys, it's like they're making mistakes where they're doing too much and they're playing outside of their role and, you know, maybe even chucking because you're kind of, you're trying to get a roster spot. And then you have a guy like Yuta who's just like so disciplined and team oriented that, Again, obviously, he's not playing in this summer league yet, but you you look back to his his G League games with the Memphis Hustle or his Raptor games last year, and it's almost the complete end of the spectrum where it's like, okay, you're you're too literally embracing your role. Um, it's okay to expand yourself beyond it a little bit. So I think that's the next step for him. Just you know, can you take an advantage on offense and, and turn it into a slightly bigger advantage? whether for yourself or, or for someone else. And I again, I think the Japan experience should be really helpful for him with, with that. 
Yeah, I think it's always interesting to watch some of these guys uh, when they go to the Olympics or other international tournaments for their home countries, and they're forced to take that kind of uh, larger, more leadership, top dog on the court type of role, um, how that translates in terms of increased confidence uh, when they come back to the NBA. But before we let you go, just one last broad question for you, Blake, and thanks again for all of your time and insight talking about the Raptors today. I want to ask just what you think the goals for next season for this Raptors organization should be, how they fit in in the landscape of the Eastern Conference, and if you were to put a likelihood that they get back into the playoffs next year after missing them last season, what that would be. Yeah, I think they they probably, if you tear out the the Eastern Conference, they're probably in like the the 6 to 10 or 7 to 11 range. You know, they're certainly not a team that is for sure going to avoid a playing game. They're not a team that for sure is going to make a a playoff run necessarily. But I think a lot would have to go wrong for them to be bad. You know, you look at last year and displaced from home, COVID outbreak wipes out half the team and half the coaching staff, including three starters. And even then, after all that, they still had to intentionally bench guys down the stretch to make sure that they didn't make the playing game and could get a better lottery spot. So, you know, it's Lowry's out and and that's a that's a tough loss, but they'll have a whole season with Ken Birch. They've got Scotty Barnes in, you know, a whole season with with Trent to see where he can go. They're a young-ish team where again, Siakam and Van Vliet are kind of at their 27 age where, you know, we're starting to think about, okay, this is who a guy is uh, and maybe not projecting as much development anymore, but that's that's a good good level for for your uh, older guys to be at rather than in their 30s. So um, I don't think there's much chance that they're terrible, barring you know major injury or another major trade. I don't know that they're going to blow anyone away. I, I'd take the over on their 37 and a half wins. Last year broke the streak of they had beat their win total over under nine years in a row. They need to get back on that streak and make it 10 of the last 11. And then in terms of like what the direction is, that that's kind of the the big question where it's like, okay, well, you you very clearly prioritized youth and the long-term picture this year by letting Lowry go, using your cap flexibility in trade to in part to acquire Precious Sachua, going with Barnes over the uh surer near-term pick at number four, not signing anyone particularly old where you know, other than Drogic, again, everyone's under 30. So you look at all that stuff, and it's like, okay, well, you're you're looking at the future, and you're looking down the line, and the tough question they'll have to answer is, do Van Vliet and Siakam at 27 on their kind of first big deals match that timeline? Can, can you work it out by the time those guys are, are 29 or so? And Malachi Flynn and Gary Trent and OG Ananobi and Scotty Barnes are all contributing by then. Or, you know, is there a timeline divide here where eventually you have to look at pivoting off one of those guys? Maybe I don't think we're there yet. I certainly don't think in the case of Siakam, you'd sell at the absolute lowest of his value. Uh, But I think it is an interesting question to keep in mind as this group tries to blend together and we see what they look like. Because I don't, they're in that awkward spot where they're good and they've got good young players and they've got good peak age players. And the path to going from a good team to a special team is uh, it's hard to project right now. And maybe Barnes or OG click and become a superstar or 
maybe another Kawhi-like trade becomes available, but uh, I don't know how much you can bank on those things. Blake, it's always a pleasure talking about the Raptors with you. Thank you again for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, man. It was fun. Nice to catch up. Thanks again to Blake Murphy of The Athletic for lending his expertise to the show. And as always, thank you to all of the loyal listeners for tuning in. Your host for this episode was me, Lauren Lee Chen. You can follow our show on Twitter at OnTheNBABeat and me personally at Lauren L. Chen. This episode was produced and edited by me with additional production help from Aaron Fishman. As always, you can listen to more episodes and subscribe to the show by searching On the NBA Beat wherever podcasts are found. Ratings and reviews are always appreciated as they really do help more people find the show. On the NBA Beat is part of the Basketball Podcast Network.